0: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to Firing Synapses. This is a show all about exploration. I will learn what makes you, you. This includes your hobbies, passions, whatever else drives an emotion. However, if you want to come on just to vent about what's currently bothering you, I'm perfectly fine with that as well. My goal for this show is for you to have a good time, learn something, and have the opportunity to talk about what you normally would not get a chance to share with others. Thank you and enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. For those return listeners, I thank you very much. I appreciate all the love. For those of you who are new to this endeavor, I am your host, Matt. Joining me on today's episode, the host of Talk Ag to Me. Please, everyone, welcome Brandon to the show. Hi, Brandon. Hey, how's it going? I'm glad you can come on to the show. Um, today, We uh, well, you sent me a long list of <laughs> things that you're passionate about, which I can totally appreciate that because I don't know if it's, I don't know what your birth sign is, but I'm a Scorpio. So I have a lot of passions across a lot of things. And uh, one of the things that you sent was agriculture, which mm-hmm. I really have a little knowledge to agriculture. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of give a uh, a brief overview of how you're involved with agriculture.
1: Yeah, for sure. So First of all, thanks for having me. You know, it's it's sure, uh, sure a sure pleasure to be able to come on here and talk to you about you know what I'm passionate about. Um, as you mentioned, I do have a long list of passions, but agriculture is is probably my my main one. Um, that and you know, kind of the public speaking, you know, education kind of stuff we talked about before. But uh, yeah, so I uh, was born and raised in Central California, and I was raised all around dairy farms, and I was you know, cultural community. And I spent most of my life, you know, surrounded by farmers. That was kind of our, you know, that was our community was just all farmers. So I kind of have had farming in my my blood my entire life. My family hasn't owned land or or animals or anything like that, but we've worked for farmers and we, we've, you know, been close with, with those families for uh, since, you know, long before I was here. Um, but yeah, so I got into high school and I got really, really involved in agriculture. Uh, so I joined a, a program called FFA, which I don't know if, if you're familiar with the program at all. Um, But FFA is uh, the Future Farmers of America. It's a youth leadership organization that's all about developing kids into leaders, you know, teaching them public speaking kind of stuff, job interview, resume building, uh, networking, just like overall trying to boost their confidence and like their, you know, uh, just ability to kind of work in the professional realm. And it's all based in agriculture. So they teach kids that kind of stuff using agriculture as examples. And so that, like the, the, when I did my public speaking training, I, I learned um, how to speak by speaking about agricultural issues. And when I did like my uh, job interview training, I applied for agriculture based jobs. When I did, you know, leadership training, it was all around agriculture based leadership positions. So, like everything I learned, I learned through, you know, food production kind of, you know, kind of uh, education. And so that kind of inspired me to go on and create the, you know, my podcast, The Talk Academy. Um, And in Talk Ag to Me, my entire goal is to try to bring people on that don't know anything about agriculture and to help them learn something about, you know, where their food comes from, the processes it goes through to get there and everything involved in the industry. And that's more than just farming. It has to do with science and technology and policy kind of stuff. Um, And we, we even have some fun episodes where we talk about how agriculture ties into things like movies and video games and TV shows. And it's kind of just you know, it's a fun place for us to talk about, you know, food and and ever everything that involves it. And so that's kind of my my story. Now I'm a I'm a junior in college and I'm studying to be an agriculture teacher myself, uh, to kind of give back to the community that that raised me. So um I'm, you know, very passionate about, about agriculture, but also about helping people, you know, learn, you know, not just about agriculture, but just in general learning new things and kind of finding their passions and that kind of stuff. So
0: yeah. So I mean, I know you said you you do a lot of like public speaking and stuff like that. Um, so does the FFA deal do anything with like 4-H? Do you kind of work with them, or is that kind of like it's similar but in a different fashion?
1: Mm. So 4-H is similar to FFA. There there are two different organizations, and FFA does tend to work with 4-H on some things, but most of the time, 4-H is kind of its own thing, and FFA is its own thing. Um. Typically at a 4-H, you know, 4-H is for kids who are between the ages of 9 and 21. And typically it's, you know, it, it's kind of more 9 to 14-ish, and then they transition into FFA. Some of them stay in 4-H, they don't want to do FFA, so they just stick with their, their 4-H group and they just kind of follow that, that path out until they until they turn 21 and they're out. Um, the FFA is for, uh, it doesn't have an age uh, restriction, it's it's more grade restricted. So it's 7th uh, grade to um, senior, senior year, but you can technically do some things in ffa until you're 21 but uh yeah so like while they cover similar things and and they kind of have similar themes to them they technically are separate organizations
0: so like uh 4-h is kind of like the the stepping stone to get into ffa type of thing Mm -hmm. yeah uh i'm sure like ffa they uh do they offer like certain programs to like grants and things like that for the youth coming up to get them more involved into agriculture and and get them into schools and things like that
1: um yeah so i mean FFA has a lot of different uh you know uh, pieces to it to help out students get more and more involved in agriculture Uh, So a a big portion of of FFA is showing animals. And so 4-H does something similar. So you're able to uh, raise and show livestock of of a variety of different species. So it can be uh, beef cattle, dairy cattle, goats, sheep, hogs, chickens, turkeys. Um, There's even some horse showing, but that's less common in in FFA chapters. Um, And so depending on what your chapter has the ability to fund, you can get um, you know, you can get the ability to show animals and, and take them to the county fair and, and, you know, you live them and you sell them for, for money and the entire purpose behind that is to try to teach kids, um, both responsibility, but also like business practices and, and proper, um, animal husbandry skills and, you know, how to take care of an animal and feed it and take care you know and to make sure it's healthy and give it, you know, medicine and all those, all those sorts of things. But, um, in terms of, you know, FFA helping out with that process, they, they basically provide um all of the education that goes into how to do those things. And sometimes they will provide the funding. It kind of depends on the program. Um, if the program has a lot of funding in it, then they can usually allocate some to the to the kids that are struggling and kind of help them pay off their projects. Um, other times it comes out of the kids' pocket. It just kind of depends on, on the size of the of the chapter. Um, but what often but what often happens is by being an FFA, um a lot of those students are Uh, Eligible for uh, high dollar scholarships. And, you know, they, they, like if you have FFA on your resume, going into a lot of ag based colleges and a lot of, you know, other uh, like industry based, you know, colleges and and even jobs, if you have FFA on your resume, you're probably going to get a pretty good uh, recommendation from that just because people that know what FFA is really value the experience that kids get from it. And so it can help out with both, you know, the the experience because of the name, but also some financial um, benefit as well.
0: Is there any? I know this is gonna be a very like vague question, but um agriculture spreads out a lot of uh fields between uh mm-hmm. like livestock uh like plants and stuff like that like i said i'm I'm sorry there's i if i you know if I'm very uh ignorant in my terminology i'm sorry like I'm trying to learn the new thing. that's why I have guests on the show to talk about their passion because I don't know a lot about it but is there a, um, a particular what I want to say sub genre or genre or field or that you 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 in particular like more than others? Um, that like if there was a project dealing with you know uh, root vegetables, that's that's your that's your jam. That's what you go for. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so definitely. Um, Because of my, you know, my role as an educator, I have to know a lot about a variety of different sections of agriculture. So I'm, I would like to say I'm fairly well educated on different aspects of plant science, animal science, mechanics, um, you know, genetic science, technology, uh, policy, all that kind of stuff. Like I, I know about all of that. And you know, I can, I can speak on most of it. But I would say that animal science is kind of my main, my main focus, you know, as an ag educator, I'm going to eventually I had to pick a specialization for what, you know, what, uh, subject I prefer to teach. And I chose animals, uh, animal science as my specialization. Um, so, cause I just, I, I feel a lot more connected to animals than I do to plants I, and crop science is definitely interesting to me, but I just grew up with cows and I just love being around cows. And so that's kind of my, my bread and butter, you know, and so, I think that uh, if I were to pick kind of a a subsection of agriculture that I kind of lean towards the most, it'd be either the beef or dairy industries, uh, more particularly the beef. You know, I was raised around dairy industry, so I, I know, you know, the dairy industry, like, like the back of my hand and I love working in it, but I just, there's something special to me about the beef industry. I love working with the, with the cattle. And I love learning about the, you know, all everything that goes into it. And despite popular belief, it's very different than the dairy industry. And I, well pretty sure i i speak for a lot of people when i say that i love hamburgers and steak and so learning where they come from is pretty cool to me
0: so i mean you just said that the beef and dairy are your kind of your stronger suits but and you they're different you know how do they differ from you know the beef you know category to the dairy
1: so uh typically what the well obviously the main difference is the um you know the 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 terminal status of the of the animal so what i mean by that is in the dairy industry, we typically don't just, you know, send any animal to, to beef. We usually like to keep our, our heifers and our cows out for a while so we can milk them and, and, you know, kind of take care of them until they're at the end of their productive life cycle. And then we send them to, to beef. Whereas on the beef ranch, you know, we just kind of raise them and fatten them up and then send them straight to beef. They don't really serve any other purpose than besides Uh, just producing the, you know, the, the, the meat that's on them. And so those, that's kind of the main difference is just, you know, what they're oriented towards and that results in there being a lot of differences. So, um, in the dairy, you know, side of things, uh, like grass fed and like range, you know, dairy cattle are a lot more rare than they are in the beef industry. Typically you have dairy cattle in corrals, they have barns, they have, you know, entire setups that are structured around keeping those dairy animals enclosed in a specific area. And that has to do with sanitary reasons just to keep them safe and, you know, make sure they don't wander off and get hurt or anything like that, because, um, as they're carrying around a lot of milk with them, it's, it's more difficult for them to run or get away from if you know, from a random predator or, you know, whatever the case may be, it's, it's easier and safer to keep them in an enclosed area. And so the dairy industry is more oriented around, uh, what's called a, a CAFO or a CAFO. And that, that stands for confined animal feeding operation. And where, whereas the beef industry, uh, typically you see, you know, beef cattle more out on pasture or on, on grass fed type of operations. There are some feedlot operations that are are structured similar to a dairy, but, um, there's, there's, you know, you would see more of the grass fed operation in a beef, uh, kind of set than a dairy set, AFOs or AFOs. And those are animal feeding operations. So main difference is just kind of the confinement differences of um how long we keep animals what we feed them uh the way we structure pens the way we that we vaccinate them types of antibiotics are the only the only similarity between the two is that they're both bovine and that's, and that's about it everything else is pretty different
0: you said you uh for like for the dairy um you you try to keep your heifers um in a closed off area to so because you know they can't you know get away try to hold them from the uh the predators and stuff like that and then eventually they'll uh, be sent off to slaughter um uh, is there a t- time period of which like it, they're no longer good for dairy and that's they move
1: on to the uh second phase their final phase what have you uh yeah so it, it depends on the cow and it depends on the operation um typically you know like obviously there's a difference between different breeds. So you have Holstein cows, which are the black and white ones, and then you have Jersey cows, which are the Brown ones. And there's some other you know, breeds that we use too, but those are kind of the two primary breeds used in dairy. Um, the difference in those two is, is also in their, in, in their maturation. So a Holstein cow um, might not last as long as a Jersey cow in terms of how long it can milk out before we had to beef it. It might last longer because Holstein's on average actually produce more milk than Jersey's do. So they kind of just have been, the cow on an individual basis, you know, typically they may last four to, you know, four to six years is kind of what you can get out of a cow before it's no longer going to be producing milk. And then you, you, you would send it to beef, but you have some cows that'll live to be 10. You have some cows that'll, you know, they'll only produce for a couple of years and then they go dry, you know, kind of, it's, it's almost like rolling a dice. You just kind of try to get, 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 lucky and kind of see how long you can keep that cow going until eventually it, you know, outlives its purpose. And so, um, obviously dairymen don't like to, Send cows to slaughter if they don't have to because they can keep getting milk from them. They can keep, you know, using them for uh, production of, you know, new calves that can give back into the cycle. But if a cow outlives its purpose and it's just eating food and it's not producing anything, then at that point, it's just wasting money. And so it, it needs to go on to the next step of the process. In general, obviously, uh,
0: your dairy cows are more, uh, <sighs> more sought after because they you know they can produce a lot longer than you know your beef because your beef is one and done where your dairy is you know over four to ten year
1: process typically yeah um and but again it depends on you know there, there's a lot of factors involved there so um, like the dairy kind of setup is is more ideal for um you know somebody who's oriented around a like a dairy sustainable economy so like you know in california obviously or uh, for example uh california is very, dairy oriented. We're actually, uh, we, we fight for the, the top, you know, the the number one position in, in the United States for the top dairy producing state. So, um, we fight with Wisconsin, Texas, and New York, and the, and the four of us kind of like to trade spots uh, constantly. And so, um, Typically, if you have a, a very dairy-centric environment, then that's going to benefit you know, raising dairy, obviously. If you have a very beef-centric environment, that's going to benefit raising beef. That's why beef is more common in the Midwest where there's more rangeland and there's easier uh, infrastructure to be used for beef production versus in California where we have not a whole lot of, of room for rangeland because, for one, we don't have enough water to maintain it, and for two, we just... Don't really have that much land left in general for that kind of stuff. So the land we do have, we usually convert into dairy, just because it's easier, it's more efficient, it's more cost effective. Um, but typically, in terms of the cattle themselves, uh, they're used for different things. So I mean, like uh, you know, a dairy cow um, isn't going to necessarily be more ideal than a beef cow because of its longevity, but because they're they're used. Uh, differently you know beef cattle are you know you feed them out for a year maybe two and then you you beef them but they're also going to give you a lot more product than a dairy cow will you know a dairy cow might take 10 years and you get some some you know half decent beef is going to go to McDonald's whereas a beef cow you can you can take it out in 2 years but it's going to go to some gourmet restaurant and make you a lot more money so it really just varies on the operation and the location
0: that was kind of my next question so do the the dairy cows that get you know are past their prime they, they go to different organizations compared to the ones that are are fed for you know beef for that uh category
1: yeah you know your fast food based meats so like mcdonald's and wendy's and you know carl jr all all of those meat typically come from dairy cows and that's not to say that you know that dairy cows are like the all lower quality meat is is from a dairy cow but typically you know beef cattle are they're raised for their beef so their their meat's going to be higher quality um so they actually, I actually got to tour a slaughterhouse facility, which was really interesting to watch. And that's how I figured out. Like, I'm sure you've heard the rumors that McDonald's, like, has, you know, they use fake meat or that, you know, that their meat is made from some non, you know, organic uh, substance that it's, you know, some kind of synthetic, you know, uh, like whatever it is. That was kind of my which again, it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's a firsthand account. So I'm not sure how much you can trust it, but that was kind of my proof against that argument is that, you know, I actually saw the cows on the rack and they were all, you know, they all had tags on where they're going to go next. One was tagged in and out. One was tagged Wendy's one was tagged uh, McDonald's. And so they all are marked for where, where they're going next in their process. And so there's actually a machine at the end of the slaughterhouse that um, grinds up any meat that's left over because they do not waste anything whenever they slaughter an animal with it, when it gets broken down, they take all the different cuts from it and send the cuts off to where the cuts are going and then they take all the organs and send the organs off somewhere they like they literally take every last bit of that animal and they use it for something nothing gets wasted or thrown out but any meat that they can't use for anything so like let's just say they have a tri-tip that's not high enough quality to be turned into a steak or a burger they grind it up into ground beef and they sell it uh, at like Taco Bell there's actually in the slaughterhouse i went to they have a grinder that they call the taco bell machine because that's where they just grind up all the remaining meat and send it there not saying it's bad but that's just you know that was the meat that wasn't kind of quality to go into like a retail kind of market or to go into um somewhere that's going to have like a higher quality like burger or steak well
0: so what do they do with all like the bones and the teeth and things like that i mean is that all kind of go into that the taco bell machine i mean
1: No. So bones, hooves, horns, teeth, all that kind of stuff that gets turned into like dog bones. Um, Some of it gets turned into um, like treats for, for pets. Some of it gets grinded up and used for medicine. Um, They actually take, you know, a lot of like the fats and and bones and stuff like that and synthesize them into plastics that they use for make like computer chips. And and obviously they use them to make like, you know, like basically um, surfaces that aren't like made from like, like anything that's made from like a plastic or like some kind of polymer. Typically, some of those plastics are going to be used from animal fats and bones and that kind of stuff.
0: I I don't I don't think I would have ever thought about, you know, a cow is going to go into, you know, a a table or whatever. (laughs) You know, that's not, you know, (laughs) um, but so you you, you talk about how you you went to a slaughterhouse. And I'm sure that's not the first time you've seen it happen. Like how difficult was it to see like the first time the the process you know the circle of of life if you would you know is that were you a young kid when that happened or uh i mean how does that
1: go about i mean so i saw i saw a a dead cow for the first time when i was a kid and that was kind of i mean no kid likes seeing a dead animal so it was kind of rough to see but i didn't i, I didn't like freak out or you know just you know swore on never eating meat again or anything like that um My reaction to the first time actually seeing the process, I was I think I was a freshman in high school. The first time I saw it, I watched a video on it first. And then my first time seeing it in person, I think I was either a junior or senior in high school. Um, It was. So the animals that I saw were animals that I had raised, so that made it a little bit harder because I actually had an, an attachment to those animals. But at the end of the day, I, I you know told myself that you know the the reason that we do the process is so somebody in the world can eat, you know, so so somebody has dinner on on their plate for another day. So you kind of you know when you look at it from that perspective because there's there's this mentality of, you know, especially on, on like social media and in the public's eye that, you know, farmers don't care about their animals or that they, you know, they try to send them off to slaughter without a second thought Okay, so A lot of farmers actually care very deeply about their animals and get, you know, somewhat upset when they have to, when they have to send an animal to beef, especially if it was a good, you know, like let's just say the dairy industry, if they have a cow that's been milking for 10 years and they have to beefer, that, that's going to be a sad day for that. It's, it's, you know, you have to constantly remind yourself, you know, we're, we're giving these animals the best life they could possibly have. We're feeding them the best diets. They're getting the best exercise, they're getting the best, you know, everything, And in return, they'll go on to feed a bunch of families. And so that made washing the process easier. But I still think the first time I saw it, it was kind of like my, the scientific part of my brain was excited. And like the, the, you know, the, the emotional part of my brain was like, oh, I raised that thing. That's kind of sad. But so it's a little bit of a conflict, but at the end of the day, like, you know, if you acknowledge what the purpose is behind it and you acknowledge like, you know, that it's, it's all done very quickly cleanly and ethically and that you know it's all quick and like they don't feel anything it makes you feel a bit better afterwards so i mean after like a
0: couple like the second or sixth or whatever you kind of get the the notion of the the good outweighs the bad if you would you know that's yes you have to put this down but you're also feeding you know families upon families with this one you know you know heifer or cow or whatever you have um I know earlier you talked about the politics of agriculture. um How does like, how does that like uh, fit into this equation?
1: The politics is a, a very it, it plays a massive role in agriculture, and and honestly, it shouldn't. You know, there's uh, pe- there's people that say all the time that that food shouldn't be a political issue, and I I agree, but by the definition of politics food is a political issue you know politics is described as um you know finding a best way to allocate resource and food is a resource and so we have to find a way to allocate it and allocate the resources that go into growing it and so that that brings politics into play um a lot of the the politics that you'll see involved in agriculture tends to be with regulation and so that has to do with you know ways that food is grown and and restrictions on how food is grown and how farmers are able to to do their you know do their practices and so a lot of the regulations tend to be okay. It's it's when the problem, you know, the problem starts to arise when overregulation comes into play. So, you know, I I don't think there's any farmer that's going to argue that regulation doesn't need to happen at all. Most, most farmers tend to agree with that. It it tends to be when overregulation is shutting down small farmers that it starts to become an issue. And, you know, people, people will often advocate for uh, more regulation because they think that large scale farming is causing, uh damage to the environment or that it's causing damage to the economy or that's you know dangerous for the workers or whatever the case may be. And so they are they argue for regulation, which I think is, you know, it, it's fair to argue for regulation in in the name of those things, as long as that's actually what's happening, which whether or not that's happening is is another topic that's heavily deba- debated. And to some degree it's true and to some degree it isn't. And so kind of the argument over why or how, in what ways we we use regulations is kind of, you know, it's it's a difficult conversation to have, but it's an important one because you know people are arguing all the time that we should be focusing more on small farms instead of large farms, and that's another political issue is you know small farm versus large farm, and at the same time they're they're causing regulations that are killing the small farmer and bringing the large farmer you know back to back to full strength, and so it's kind of you know you're, you're defeating the purpose with with stuff like that, and so regulation is kind of one of the hot topic issues with with politics and agriculture in California particularly water is a big hot topic political political issue because we've been you know in and out of droughts for for you know decades now and the droughts are natural you know I'm not going to say that they're not entirely you know envir- environmentally motivated they do have a lot of environmental influence but a lot of the droughts in California are also political because Uh, you know, we we have the water, it's just that it's not being allocated to the right places um, appropriately, because oftentimes, the California government refuses to build infrastructure that would allow that water to be distributed effectively to the farmers that need it. And so it's when you get into issues like that kind of stuff, like the, really, the the politics with agriculture is less, it's not like the politics we have in you know, in, in, in regular society where it has to do with, you know, identity and, and rights and all that kind of stuff. A lot of the politics in agriculture has to do with who's allowed to do what and how much. And so like the politics can go into like pesticide usage. It can go into uh, water rights and, and, you know, ownership of land. It can go into taxes. It can go into like, the politics around agriculture is very, um, very wide range because it's just the, there are so many different things and it depends on what you define as political, you know, like, um, the environmental impact of agriculture is is something that people often argue about a lot, but whether or not that's political is is a different issue because it can be considered political because it's the environment and environment is a, is a a political issue, but agriculture in and of itself is an environmental practice because it has to work with the environment to even function. So is that political or is that just debates over how the industry is doing its job? And, And so it kind of, there's there's kind of a gray line on on the politics and agriculture but the the main things that tend to be you know political issues in agriculture are, are regu- regulations and allocation of resources
0: so how does this uh your passion of public speaking come into uh the factor is that a, a result of your agriculture and the politics behind it that you know they they try to regulate you know small versus large versus you know uh what have you so to get the politics out of this or i guess into it i guess either way um that's Mm -hmm. kind of how your 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 public speaking comes in just kind of defending it type of thing is that kind of the gist of
1: how you got into public speaking uh kind of yeah so like like i mentioned i i learned how to speak while i was in ffa and the The main reason that I, I learned how to speak was because I was pursuing a leadership role and I saw the great leaders that were before me and they were all great public speakers. And I was a really, really shy kid. I wasn't very, you know um, I wasn't very um, outgoing. I wasn't really um, like very loud spoken. I kind of just sat into myself and didn't really say much. Um, but I was very good at speaking from what my teacher said. I didn't believe them, but when I actually did spoke, they were always impressed with what, what I said. And so it, it was more they're they impressed with what I said. It's just how I said it. They needed the work, so my teachers influenced me to to take up public speaking and start practicing it to become a stronger leader. And so I took their advice and I tried it. And uh, when I got into public speaking, I, st- I I was taught to speak by you know using uh, agricultural issues as my as my grounds to give speeches on. So I was doing a contest called extemporaneous public speaking, and extemporaneous or extemp as we called it was basically a contest where you it's so like let's just assume we're in a contest setting you would go into a room and you would pick a topic so there'd be like 20 cards laid out on table and you can't see what any of them say you just pick up three of them at random you look at them and on each of those cards is an agricultural issue or it's a question or it's you know something relating to agriculture and it could be anything and you read through the three questions and you pick one of them that you want to answer and then at, you know, off of that one you have 30 minutes to write a, a four to six minute speech and then you give it and then after those 30 minutes you know, after the 30 minutes are up you give your speech and after your four to six minute speech, the judges have five minutes to ask you questions about anything you said. So it was a very intense you know, contest. And we were able to, to have research with us. I mean, we did like, I did, I did months and months and months of research. Like I had like probably like three months before my first contest where I was doing research four or five hours a day, every day for three months straight. So I had, and we had binders. So we had, we were, we were allowed to have uh, five, 100 page binders with us in the contest. And I filled mine up like really quickly because just because of the amount of research I was doing. And so, you know, doing research on these issues and and speaking on these issues and and debating people on, on them and and that sort of thing, answering questions really kind of, you know, got me motivated about how serious some of them were and how, Nobody really talks about them much, and you know while there's there's lobbyists and there's people that are fighting for some of these issues to be to be resolved, and there's you know scientists trying to fix some of these issues with you know with the environmental impact and with you know new practices and that kind of stuff, I was noticing that nobody was having the conversation about why nobody in the in the general public cares about agriculture anymore. you know like your your average consumer doesn't tend to think about agriculture as much as you know your average agriculturalist and you know, it's their food. They're the ones that get they get the final product in the, at the end of the day. And so I figured that it'd be more important for them to hear it than anybody because they're voting on the stuff that we're we're struggling with. And so that was what kind of motivated me to get more into public speaking, so I could do advocacy kind of stuff. You know, so I could do the podcast. So I can do you know, I, I I've spoken on you know on several stages in front of large crowds about agricultural issues and I've been able to kind of actually you know teach people about agriculture and help them become interested and motivated in what's going on in the industry and uh, you know what's uh, what issues it's facing and and what it's doing well and how they can help and so it, that was kind of the the starting point for it um but I mean as I've gotten into college and as I've you know coached and mentored some some students and as I've kind of developed my own you know leadership potential my own kind of you know uh, my own image of who I am I've just generally, you know, come across public speaking as kind of a tool that I use now for everyday life. Um, you know, I actually, I I'm, I'm, uh, I've been a keynote speaker at a couple of conferences before that weren't about agriculture. And I actually am going to be a keynote speaker at a couple of conferences next week. And they're all, um, so they're, they're in, they're in virtual reality. So they're virtual reality conferences, but I'm going to be speaking on behalf of how to give a speech in virtual reality and also like how to do mentoring and coaching and that kind of stuff. And so, like that kind of stuff has kind of showed me the power of public speaking and the use, you know, utility of it. And it's like, it's kind of ironic because public speaking and agriculture suffer from the same issue. Everybody's scared to talk about them or nobody cares enough to to do it. And so I'm trying to bring awareness to both, you know, it's, it's, that's why they're the, my two main passions Just just because they get ignored way too often. And they're both extremely useful to have knowledge about.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I said, when, when I saw, well, other than the long list of what you sent me, but yeah, public speaking and <laughs> agriculture, they, they, neither one of them I'm, uh, you know, too familiar with. And it was just kind of, uh, you know, that combination by themselves would have been enough, but you know, that combination was like, I need to have uh Brandon on my show that, to, 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 you know, talk about those two things. And then, um, and I know you talked about the, the competition and you had your 500, uh, page binders now when you're preparing for that do you they give you like uh kind of topics of what could be discussed or i mean you're just kind of doing research on pretty much everything
1: uh we have a a general idea of what could be on there but it's like basically how it works is so on on, so the the competition goes through different levels so there's the chapter level or the uh, sectional level which means there's like I don't know, 10, 20 other schools in your section. So you have the sectional level across them, you know, the regional level, which goes, you know, up to like, so California is split into six regions. So you take one of those regions and that's your entire, you know, competition level. And then you go to the state level, which is against the entire state of California. And then you go to the national level, which is the you know, the entire country. So on the sectional, you know, every year topics that were, you know, let's just say they were, they were state topics they're gonna get bumped down to regional and then the regional topics go down to sectional and the sectional co- topics are, are gone. And so we were able to kind of get an idea on what to expect just by looking at topics from previous years, but we had no idea what, what to expect in terms of you know, what we were going to have to prepare for. So we basically just made a list of like, okay, these are topics that have been discussed in the past. Let's just have information ready on these. And then let's think of some other issues that are prevalent right now. So um, when I first started it, it was 2016. And so we obviously had a new presidency and there was some stuff going on with trade and agriculture and trade is a very, you know, important issue. And so we were kind of preparing like, okay, this stuff's happening with trade. We better be ready for a trade speech. And we didn't have anything on trade. So we had to do a bunch of research on, you know, tariffs on, you know, new trade, um, uh, uh what's what I'm looking for, like trade agreements, um, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So we basically had like a list of like, okay, those are always going to be topics that they have to discuss. And that included like, uh, biotechnology gmos urban sprawl water pesticides antibiotics like you know hot topic issues like that and then everything else was kind of like what could they throw at us just in case because we get like weird stuff like we we've been in a contest like pre- completely prepared with five binders full of stuff on all kinds of science and policy and like you know all these great stuff and like one time a friend of mine got a question that was if you could design an agricultural app for your phone what would it be like, how do you write a five minute speech about that? <laughs> so we'd have to have, you know, just random stuff ready, just like just on the off chance we get something stupid like that. And so it was kind of just the the whole, you know, the whole important part of it was being able to think on your feet. You know, you could use your resources, but you better be able to adapt quickly because it was never like you, know, you pick it up and it just says GMO and you write a speech on GMOs. It was usually a question in the form of like, you know, in, in what ways can, can agriculture improve the, um, the food safety, you know, the nutrition and the, um, food security of, of the United States over the next 30 years. And you have to be able to answer that. And so you say, okay, well, food safety, um, you know, food security and nutrition what can, what can work with that. And so you take into the food safety, you take a little bit of GMO, you take a little bit of, of, policy and regulation and you tie all that together into a, into a neat speech and you give your speech. And the hard part was, if you're giving a speech on let's just say it's on gmos for example if you bring up water once in that speech the judges can ask you any question they want about water so you'd be really careful with what you brought up because they could quiz you on it And if you don't know your stuff then you basically got backed into a corner and you just fell apart
0: all right so this is going to be a really silly question but can you
1: describe what gmos are yeah so for, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know a a, GM, <laughs> a a gmo is a um it's a genetically modified organism and so what that means is kind of up in the air right now because there's an official definition for a GMO and then there's a technical definition for a GMO. So technically, anything that's alive today is a GMO because we're not all our ancestors. Like, you know, your dog is not the same. It does not look the same as the first dog that was ever, you know, that was ever born. Obviously, there's been some genetic variation through crossbreeding and all that kind of stuff. And so technically, that'd be considered a genetically modified organism because his, his genes have been modified. But the official definition for GMO, like what people think of when they say GMO, is more um, accurately defined with genetically engineered modification or genetically engineered organism or a GEO. Um, and that is something that has had its genes altered um, artificially. So it doesn't naturally go through crossbreeding or anything like that. Like you're in a lab and you take the gene from one organism and put it into another and it causes some kind of reaction in that gene uh, or in that uh, organism's genotype. And so, like, for, you know, to give you an example, uh have you ever heard of golden rice no not not that i can think of off the top of my head okay so golden rice is an example of a gmo it's it's rice it's your regular white rice that has been genetically modified to be um to have an increased beta excuse me an increased beta carotene count and so that means that it'll have more active amounts of vitamin a available into it that normally wouldn't be there. And the idea behind it was it's supposed to be cheap. It's supposed to be readily available. It's supposed to be, um, you know, healthy and, and you can eat a lot of it in, in small portion or in small, um, like like a small amount of time, um, you know, and, and they would be able to provide that to developing countries that don't have access to nutritious food that has, you know, a lot of vitamin A in it. And so that way it can benefit the, the nutri- you know, the nutrition and the, and the general, you know, affordability and availability of food. Uh, to developing countries. And so that'd be an example of a GMO that's like rice doesn't naturally have high amounts of vitamin A in it, but they can, they can modify by putting a gene in there from something that does like a carrot or a pumpkin. And then that would boost the amount of vitamin A in that, in that rice.
0: I was just going to say, when you can't decide if you want rice or a carrot, you can have golden rice and you can have (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) There you go. So going back to your, your, your state and regional and sectional uh, Mm -hmm. competition, is there um, some type of a platform of which you can see it virtually, like for lack of terms, like a Twitch or something like that, where like they broadcast um, the, the state finals or the regionals things, or is that something that you physically have to go to to possibly get your trickle down questions for the
1: next years to come? So you mean like in terms of how we prepare for the next topic or for like, you know, could just anyone watch it?
0: Uh, uh so a little bit of both. I mean, so okay. if for you for someone who's preparing for this year's competition or next year, is there a digital place that you can go to that um you can check on, you know, what's the current um uh, hot button or, you know, if you're just interested or, you know, or do you have to physically go to these locations and, you know, just learn by going?
1: Well, Yes and no. Um, so for most of like the, the sectional regional and like, you know, sometimes even state level, you couldn't uh, you couldn't find them online anywhere. There's no YouTube video. There's no live streaming of any kind. Um, they're just, you know, they're, they're just localized, um, you know, competitions. So you have to be in the room to be able to watch, to watch them. But, you know, especially with this past year, with everything going on, they are moving all of the competitions online and virtual and making them virtual I don't know if they're recording any of them, so they, you might be able to get access to them, you know, that way. But I do know in, in years past, they have had the national competition recorded because that's how I actually learned how to do extemporaneous was I watched the national videos for hours on end. And those are like the best of the best speakers. And so that could give you like a general idea of, you know, for one, how to write the speech and how to give it and, you know, kind of what a good speaker should look like, but also what kinds of issues they're looking at on the national scale versus, you know, the domestic scale. And so that was kind of a good indicator for people who are preparing or for people who just wanted to hear it. The way we prepared was on the actual uh, website for, for, you know, the, the state FFA organization. So for California state FFA, they had a list of all of the topics that were from each competition. And so you are able to kind of go back and, and, and see that and say, Oh, okay. So state last year, they talked about, you know, urban sprawl and ag mechanics, a whole bunch. I better have that ready for my regional competition.
0: Yeah. I was just going to ask, I mean, if there wasn't a, you know, Uh, Live video or recorded video, was there some type of like transcripts or, you know, someone, you know, kind of wrote down generalized topics of what they talked about so that you have some type of a source to look at for in the future? Now, also, you said something about your keynote speeches. um, Well, you said virtually. Oh, actually, you said virtual reality. I'm like, you're talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, virtual reality as in that or just that's the space that you're going to be providing your keynote speech in oh no it's
1: it's entirely so i got my oculus ri- or my oculus quest right down here so yeah so i'm actually going to be in the headset you know with my controllers actually giving the speech on a virtual stage in front of a virtual crowd um using a social vr app called alt space
0: and so is that going to be a, a a localized event only for whoever is attending i mean since you are already virtual i mean is that like i said is it only for the people who are there or is it someplace that can be streamed live or
1: seen later on yeah no that's that's actually an entirely public event so anyone who has access to a vr headset or even if you don't you can go on to the altspace website and use the t the 2d desktop version to be able to to watch the event and and it's going to be recorded and live stream so you'll be able to watch it while it's happening and and also afterwards so um, those, those speeches are for, like I said, they're for conferences that are you know, entirely independent of, of anything I do. I was kind of just asked to come on because they know my speaking ability. And so they, they kind of just thought it'd be cool. So, um, yeah, anyone who wants to watch that stuff is they, they have full access to it.
0: So do you feel, um, uh, relief that you don't have to talk about agriculture? You can get, uh, spread out <laughs> other ways or, or, are you kind
1: of disappointed that you're going away from your home base type of thing? You know, I, I, it's, it's a bit of, again, it's a bit of both. I, I really enjoy talking about agriculture, but at the same time, you know, I have a podcast where I talk about it, and I talk about it to people all the time. So I do get a little burnt out at times. You know, there, there are definitely days where I just don't even want to think about agriculture. I just want to talk about something else. You know, even if it's something you know silly and and kind of goofy, like you know Star Wars or video games or just anything that's not serious and there's other times where I just want to talk about you know mentoring and leadership and you know public speaking and, and kind of just help people develop their own stuff like you know I don't know so for, for these species I'm really excited that I get to kind of talk about something that's not agriculture for once because I think that'll be kind of a nice change of pace and it's a good challenge because you know I I was trained to speak on agriculture I was not trained to speak on anything else and so it kind of forces me to work outside my comfort zone and learn how to speak on things that I'm typically not used to speaking on.
0: So since you're heavily involved in agriculture do you have people that are close to you that kind of like are almost glad that you get a chance to like break free and talk about something else i mean are they like all right enough about the cattle i've heard enough about the the grass (laughs) feeding and and the heifers can can we talk about like soda or or what have you
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I actually so my um my family gets like that all the time cuz they come from agriculture so they know. I mean, if I talk to any issues, you know, about any issues to them, they're like, "Yeah, we get it. Like we we read the newspaper too. Like we you don't have to tell us." And so like they they get a little tired of it. They like to talk about other stuff, which I'm fine with, but like my roommates and you know, my girlfriend and my other friends, they um they really are like, even, even though some of them come from agricultural backgrounds, they still enjoy learning about all the stuff that I have to talk about just because it's not something they think about on a daily basis, but they're even like, I mean, my roommates, for example, we, you know, we have sessions where we kind of just sit down and talk for two or three hours about whatever comes up. And sometimes it's agriculture, sometimes it's not. Um, They actually ask me questions a lot of the time. So like the other day we were sitting at the table eating breakfast and my roommate asked me why milk is white and, you know, the difference between milk that's white and milk that's not white and kind of like all all that kind of stuff. And so we had a whole discussion about the dairy industry and, and, you know, cow biology. And then after that, we wanted to talk about you know uh public speaking and then after that we started talking about video games like it kind of just it depends on where the conversation goes it's not it's not necessarily they you know i don't just rant to them about agriculture and they just get tired of it usually they start it or i, ta- or I start talking about something else and ag just kind of slides its way into the conversation
0: so I, i'm kind of curious now why is milk white and then when you get like almond milk it's kind of that <laughs> weird beige color it's like i got milk mm-hmm. no that doesn't
1: look like milk that i've ever seen <laughs> So milk is white mainly because it's just mostly calcium. Uh, if you think about your bones being white, your bones are, are, are mostly calcium as well. Um, so the calcium content in milk is actually what makes it, you know, what gives it its color. And uh, there are other uh, varieties of milk that are, you know, either they're less dominant in calcium or they have another, another maybe they are the same amount of calcium, but they have another um, nutrient at end that's even more dominant. So there's a, uh, there's a breed of, of dairy cattle called, um, uh, Oh, you know, Guernseys, and so Guernsey is kind of like a red you know like a reddish white it's it's got like it's basically think of like a black and white cow, but it's got red you know red spots instead of black um and they're a little bit shorter than your average cow and they're less popular in um in dairy production, but they are used in like Wisconsin and they, there's a couple of states that actually like using Guernsey's Guernsey milk is actually super high in vitamin A, so it's kind of like you know the the golden rice and so as we talked about the rice turns kind of a golden orange color and carrots and pumpkins turn orange because they are high in vitamin vitamin a, uh, Guernsey milk is also kind of an orangish Brown color. And so, you know, you'll have things like you mentioned, like the almond milk is, is often kind of a more beige color than, than it is white. That's just because the nutritional content is different in almond milk than it is in other things. And so, um, when it comes to like, even like, you know, what's, what's interesting, I was talking to him about like human milk, you know, like, like, uh, like female, like whenever females breastfeed and whenever a woman breastfeeds, when her baby is sick, the milk will actually adjust its, its antibodies and adjust its, you know, what's, what's actually in the milk to try to help the baby, uh, get over its illness faster. And so, cause like the, the, the connection between the mother and the baby through breastfeeding basically like scans the baby body and says okay there's something in there that's not supposed to be in there here's some antibodies kill it and so what's funny about it is whenever it does that the the woman's breast milk actually changes color sometimes
0: i i would have never thought to even ask that question but that's good to know um (laughs) so i mentioned other kinds of milk like coconut and almond so like with a dairy cow there there is a a, a teeth there to milk the there there's a female uh, breast to milk um and how do those like almond coconut um oat milk how do they kind of come into the process of being a, a liquid form <laughs>
1: yeah so obviously this you know this is kind of the common joke is you know like um where's the you know where's the udder on an almond you can't you can't milk an almond like you can milk a cow and so the 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 process behind you know making almond milk i'm actually not entirely familiar with the entire process but i do know that it has to do with extracting the moisture from an almond so usually it could be like grinding it up and then you know um, like you grind it up until it's basically like there's like nothing left and you kind of extract the moisture out of it or it could be um you know maybe there's some kind of like uh, like mixture that they put it into and it kind of dissolves the almond into the mixture i i, I just know that it's you know they just use like the whole almond like, like i said it's not like they're actually milking an almond um so like there's something a little bit more you know technical there that's that's obviously not they don't have a dairy operation set up for it
0: because at least with coconuts there's at least that uh, coconut water on the inside i mean but there's also coconut milk as well so i just that's kind of always weird to like have a, how they have all these different varieties of milk. And I'm like, well,
1: that's their their plant or their droops or their what have you. <laughs> so I, I, I just looked it up right now. It says almond milk is made by blending almonds with water and straining the mixture to remove the solids. So, yeah, there you go. You just mix it with some water and then, you know, you, you mix it up and then you just kind of run it through probably a, a, you know some kind of sifter or you know, something that can get the solids out of it. And then you have almond milk.
0: So, easier than I kind of thought. I mean, I'm sure that you know, every company adds their own uh, their own flair to, you know, have it. This is a diamond and oh, this yeah. is the other kind. Yep. I mean, for the last, you know, hour or so, we've been pretty much talking about agriculture. Is what, when you're not agriculturing, like what kind of hobbies or interests are you into that are kind of completely separate? Or are you like all, all, all agriculture and a little Oculus every once in a while? <laughs>
1: So that's that's kind of the funny thing is people assume that you know my entire life revolves around agriculture, and to a degree it does. You know that is going to be my my future career, and that's kind of what I base my my you know my knowledge set around. But I am a massive you know just nerd, so like I love you know video games and movies and you know sci fi and kind of stuff like uh, you know I'm a big fan of like Star Wars and you know Marvel and DC and all that. So I'll spend a lot of time just kind of you know watching movies and youtube videos on that playing with my oculus playing on my xbox you know just um like what like i was talking to you about before the episode i recently got into uh card games so i grew up playing like Oh, and then i it was like collecting pokemon cards but recently um i learned how to play magic the gathering and i yu like you go back up and i learned how to play the pokemon card game and so i've been playing those a whole bunch um you know i i mess around with like uh like just to show you I don't know if you can see this, but I've got my, my, uh, Lego Boba Fett on my desk. So kind of mess around with, you know, with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, just kind of like to, like to hang out and just have, like, I, I go for walks a lot. My roommates and I will just go for walks a lot, just, you know, just to get out of the house. So, um, that's something I like to do. I mean, it's hard for me to say that I have like a hobby just cause I, I don't know what's considered a hobby and what's not like I, I, my, I consider my podcast a hobby, but I'm not sure if it can still be considered a hobby because of how much time a week I invested into it. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, I, so the long and short of it, my, my, I would say like my non-serious hobbies are like gaming and, you know, looking up like weird science stuff. And like, I used to be like a, big science, which I still am a big science nerd, but I used to be like huge in like technology and like prosthetics and like, you know, the future and all that kind of stuff. So I used to like do tons of research on, you know, that kind of stuff and, you know, just kind of nerding out about everything's going on in the world, AI and robots and, you know, the fun stuff.
0: So I'm hearing you like to do research on whatever you're you're into. You're 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 diving into the research category. You want to know as much as you can about. It. And I guess this shows by the the list of things that you said you're passionate about: uh, uh, science and body language, reading, and, <laughs> and which uh, I mean, I guess that kind of goes into public speaking as well. I mean, if you you know you're looking at the audience and you know you can kind of gauge how they they're feeling just by. The, you know, just their body language, you can adjust your comments and statements accordingly, which I kind of need to learn that because I get in Mm -hmm. trouble talking to the wife, you know, so I'll I wait till she's mad and then just slam more onto her. I'm like, you know, there's no point of, she's already mad, you know, I can't, you know, she's already going, I've already gone down this rabbit hole. I might as well see how far it'll go. So there's no point of bringing her down when she's
1: high, you know, so. Yeah, no, I mean, that's just kind of, you know, to your point, you know, body language is something that I've, I've really taken an interest to, but that kind of goes in with like the public speaking kind of stuff. It's really useful to know that. And like, you know, just get involved in everyday interactions. You can save yourself from getting mad, you know, or, or from, from somebody else getting mad at you Um, or, or you can make somebody mad if you really want to, you can figure out ways that will kind of, you know, push their buttons a little bit harder, but um, yeah, no, it's kind of, you know, the thing I always tell my roommates because, or just pretty much anyone, cause I will just like randomly spout off just, random facts and just like all like stuff that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. I'll just say, hey, did you know that you know a platypus has a has a poisonous um spur on the back of its heel? And just like, you know, the random the most random stuff that has nothing to do with anything that's going on. And they're just like, dude, how do you know so much? And basically my answer is anytime I have a question about anything, it doesn't matter how stupid the question is, I do like an hour of research on it just to make sure I really know. Because like you know how like there's like the whole like you're watching a youtube video and you click on the recommended and you click on another recommended and you just kind of fall down the youtube hole yeah i do that with research
0: well i mean don't platypus has don't they have their hooks on both feet it's not like just one it's not like you gotta watch out for the left foot because that's where the (laughs) uh, the actual hook is you know but yeah it's is it like a neurotoxin or is it just a venom or
1: uh, it's a uh, yeah. It's, it's like a neurotoxin that kind of paralyzes you temporarily. Actually, it can kill dogs.
0: Hmm. Do they um, they're did they have teeth or is it just like the strong like beak type of thing?
1: As far uh, as platypuses, I not dogs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as far as I know, they don't have teeth. I think they just have a bill. They might have like small teeth just for breaking, you know, like breaking through food or something. But I'm pretty sure it's just their bill. Um, but they have like the weirdest like they have weird rating mating rituals they have weird like they're 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 goofy animals
0: yeah uh, so it's kind of like a duck mixed with a stingray mixed with a beaver if i'm not you know mistaken (laughs) yeah no pretty (laughs) much
1: and a kangaroo don't forget about the kangaroo or no not even a kangaroo that's an echidna um because they lay eggs too and, and their eggs like because they don't they don't have any proper way of nursing, so they just like sweat out milk, and their egg, their their offspring just like lick the milk off of them. Like it's just they are weird animals.
0: <laughs> yeah, because they're not marsupials, right? Because they give birth to eggs. So yeah, that's it's totally uh, they're in, in their own league, right? I mean, I don't think they have anything else that's close to them without like mashing things together.
1: No. Yeah, no. There's there's some weird theories about you know like how evolution worked along that line. It was like. Something that laid eggs, like some kind of weird reptile duck thing, and then platypus and then echidna and then kangaroo and then us, or something like that
0: so that's uh that's a, one of those natural gMOs then <laughs> right exactly yep. I think uh, you know I, I learned a lot about agriculture and things of that nature, so before I end this episode, uh, can you remind the people of where they can find you if they want to hear more about agriculture or listen to your podcast,
1: what have you um, Tell people where they can find you. Absolutely. So once again, my name is Brendan Black. I run a podcast called Talk Ag to Me, and it's talk AG You know, to me. Um, and despite popular belief, ag is not short for silver. It's short for agriculture. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people will actually make that mistake. But you can find Talk Ag to Me anywhere you find podcasts. I'm also on YouTube and uh, anywhere on social media. Just search up Talk Ag to Me. I'm guaranteed you'll find me. And you know my own stuff is just Brendan Black, um, and it's B-R-E-N-D-A-N, and in black I like the color. Um, and you guys are more than welcome to reach out to me if you have any questions about anything I do—agriculture, public speaking, you know, mentorship kind of stuff. Even if you just want to talk about platypuses for a little bit, that's fine too. Um, you know, I'm always up for for fun conversations and you know and, and uh, you know answering questions and making new friends. And so yeah, that's kind of uh, that's that's my stuff
0: awesome uh like i said so if we have nothing else to say i'm just gonna say goodbye everybody you have been listening to firing synapses with matt Hamity. i want to thank everyone who listened to the show if you enjoyed today's episode please share it with your friends also feel free to send all questions comments constructive criticisms and new topics to mhamityphoto at gmail.com that's m h a m i d y photo at gmail.com it just may end up on a future episode if you would also like to help the show you can follow me on all your social media platforms which includes facebook instagram and twitter It only takes a couple of seconds, and it's still free. Otherwise, goodbye, everybody.